Well, good morning, Trinity family. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Peter Willis. Uh, my wife, Michaela, and I have been a part of Trinity here for a number of years. I think we got a picture of our family. Yep, there we go. Uh, that's our two-year-old Scotty, and uh, I guess two and a half. And uh, we actually have our second child on the way uh, due in January. So it's an exciting time. And uh, I am just very excited to be with you this morning. I have the challenge, though, of batting cleanup for Pastor Ben. So he'll be back next week. But uh, this week, I'm excited to share with you was very, some things that are very dear to my heart. Now, on January 25th, 2010, uh, Apple Computer was valued at about $174 billion. Two days later, uh, January 27th of that year, they unveiled the iPad. And this really seemed to turn, serve as a, another turning point in their history. Since then, they've seen almost unfathomable growth. Uh, to date, they've sold over 350 million iPads. Uh, last year alone, reportedly over 60 million. And what, it, what this has really done is, is, is uh, elevated them in many ways above their competition. Uh, as of this year, Apple's, uh, right, right now, Apple's worth more than $3 trillion. Uh, what they've done is more than just introduce computer products that we have in our pockets, but they've actually started a technological movement that has revolutionized the way that we communicate. It's put computers in our pockets and made accessibility um, for people very far away. Um, it, it's really heightened that. But what if I told you that 2010 was, a, was another year, a defining moment for another movement, one that has actually had a much greater impact on history? Well, the movement I'm talking about is the global church movements that have been taking over and exploding around the world. The Great Commission is familiar to a lot of us. Um, it's found in Matthew uh, 28, verses 18 through 20, and this is where we see Jesus' last instructions to his disciples. He uh, commands them to go into all of uh, the world and to make disciples, to, to baptize them, to teach them everything he, that he's commanded them. Uh, this involves... Uh, this is a call for every believer, and it, and it involves uh, taking the gospel um, through evangelism to people, nurturing new believers, and, and, and uh, helping people understand who Jesus is. Here we are 2,000 years later from Christ, and what I want to do to kind of prime our pump before we get in uh, to God's word today, we're going to be in, in Mark. I want to give us some current realities. Where are we at as the global church in fulfilling Christ's mission? So here are four realities that I want to walk us through. So um, if you go to uh, the next slide, the first point is, and this is probably not new to you, but the world's population is exponentially growing, and, and so is the global church. When my dad was born in 1960, uh, global population was about 3 billion people. When I was born, it was 5 billion people. Today it's 8 billion, and uh, when my son has kids, it'll probably uh, be about 10 billion people. That's just massive growth. You can kind of see this. It's, it might be a little hard to see, but 1960 is uh, you see 3 billion people, and we're probably going to hit 10 billion by about 2040 or so. That's crazy. How, how are we doing as a church? How are we doing um, with going wide, bringing the gospel to everybody, but also uh, keeping up with population growth? Well, it seems that we are living in the most explosive time in church history. There are, are a lot of different expressions of Christianity around the world, but what I want to focus on today is uh, the, the, rapid, um, the rapid movements that have been going on uh, called multiplying church movements. 
In fact, since 2010, we've seen the Lord do some incredible things. Uh, what is a, a multiplying church movement, though? Well, it, it refers to um, a phenomenon where a network of churches rapidly um, grow through lots of multiplication. And it's characterized uh, by churches that continue to reproduce quickly, resulting in at least four generations of churches within the span of three years. So a lot of really rapid growth. If we go to the, uh, the next slide, here we go. Yeah, um, this is what God has been doing since 2010. Check this out. There's about 5,500 active movements around the world, four generations of churches. Average population, about 56,000 people in those movements, all since 2010. Isn't that incredible? About 114 million believers in these movements have come to know the Lord in the last 12 years, resulting in 8 million churches. And this has taken place in 190 countries in the vast majority of language clusters in the world. So we are really seeing the gospel go wide. And, and numerically speaking, we have crossed a border. If you go to the next um, slide, this is uh, kind of can show in, in kind of in a snapshot what's gone on. So 2010, for the first time, you can kind of see in terms of um, believers, multiplying believers being raised up. You, you see within these movements, um, you can actually tell that there's some progress there. What I want to point out is this goes through February of last year, 2022. And so if you go from 2020 to 2022, you're really looking at about 14 months. And you see it's about doubled in that 14-month period. Uh, we're well over 14 months past that as well. So what we are seeing is incredible growth. But that brings me to my second point. Let's look at what's going on in the world. I actually, I, I think if you go on to the next slide, there's one other thing I wanted to talk about, and that this is Bible translation as well. Um, according to Wycliffe, 97% of people in the world have the Bible available in their language. That's significant, at least portions of the Bible. 2022 was, was also a significant year in many ways for Bible translation. Um, there was a new Bible translation project started about every day of the year about 367. That's incredible. That's a 13% increase from the year before. Uh, a portion of the Bible was translated into um, uh, a new language and given to them 52 times last year, representing about once uh, per week. That's incredible. But now I want to kind of focus on, again, that second reality, which is where are we at and actually um, what's, what is the unfinished task in the world? Ethnic, linguistic people groups that have never been engaged with the gospel. With a population of about uh, almost 3 million people. There's also one third of the population in the world right now that, as you said, they have no access to the gospel. I put my, think about that, those of us who have kids. Our kids could grow up, start their own families, um, retire, in their life and never meet another believer, never have access to God's word, never have access to learn who Jesus is. And there are 5.5 billion people in the world that are lost. Those are stark realities. According to Wycliffe, there are, six, there are still about 1,680 languages in the world where no Bible translation work has started, but yet there's a need for the Bible to be translated. You see, we live in unprecedented times, and, and in many ways, it seems possible that in our lifetime, also, American Christians 
seemed largely unaware of what got a groundbreaking study in 2018 where they looked at awareness of missions within the American church. And they found that uh, only 17% of American churchgoers had heard of the Great Commission and knew what it meant. 68% of Americans believe that America is the center of Christianity. 25% of American Christians affirm that missions is a mandate for the whole church. Lastly, American Christians who are engaged in the Great Commission are at an increasing risk of burning out. Let's look at pastoral burnout. That's rising really rapidly. Um, two in five pastors, 41%, reported last year uh, having thought, uh, thinking about seriously considering quitting full-time ministry. That's a 13% increase from the year before. 25% of pastors say they, have they feel that they have lost their calling in the last couple of years. Uh, this isn't just a, a phenomenon among pastors. The numbers are similar in other vocational ministry roles uh, and pretty stark within the missions world as well. It's only getting harder. In 2015, the majority... See, on one hand, we're living in the most explosive church growth in history, probably all of human history, of any movement. Yet, on the other hand, America seem to be aware of the Great Commission, or let alone that, th that the real reason that we are here on earth today is to take part in God's work. More than this, many believers who are actively involved in the Great Commission are burning out and leaving ministry. And this leaves me with a question that I've been wrestling with for the last year or so. And I want to invite all of you guys to keep you and I walking with the Lord and engaged in the Great Commission for the rest of our lives. Or I think maybe better said, what is true of God that can sustain and empower our faithful service in the Great Commission amidst life's storms? Now, I don't know about you. I don't know what you or your family are going through today, but I do know that life seems to throw things at us on our backsides. Maybe you've dealt with um, a sudden illness and the fear that can come along with that, or the rupturing of a friendship, betrayal, Maybe it's a financial hardship or those tests you can't study for. Regardless of the situation, we all have experienced that reality, that fear that can grip us. Where can we turn, though, when we're suddenly rocked by an overwhelming fear? Can we trust Jesus when it feels like he has abandoned us? And even if he could, he wanted to, can Jesus really do anything to sustain us in the midst of our storms? Well, today we're going to look at, uh, briefly at a passage in Mark where Jesus' disciples are thrust into their own sudden storm. And we'll see how they wrestle with these very questions. And we'll see how Jesus responded. So turn with me uh, to Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. And as we're going there, um, let me give you a little context of, of Mark. Uh, Mark wrote his book from the eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter, and he wrote it to build a case for the divinity of Jesus by highlighting both his authority and uh, his power that only God himself could possess. This story is set on the sea of Gal in the Sea of Galilee, which is in northern Palestine, and it, it's placed within a larger context of the book of Mark, roughly the first eight chapters, where it really showcase his divine authority and his power. And he gives these in the face of people who are questioning uh, his authority, both, both uh, religious leaders, and we also see his family. So let's jump into it. Verses 35 and 36. When evening had come, he said to them, 
let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat at at the seashore. And, And notice, the one thing I really want to point out is Jesus is the one that leads his disciples in the boat and takes them to the other side. If you look at the, the context where they're going, um, Jesus is actually taking the disciples with him as he is about to go bring his kingdom to the, he would interact with the demoniac, he would uh, save him and transform that area. All right, let's get into the real tension of the narrative. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat, filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they awoke him and said to him, teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? All right, so notice as they're crossing the sea, suddenly this great storm comes up and threatens to swamp the boat. This filled the disciples with fear. And I think this is a natural response to a situation like that. But I'm also, I've never been in that situation, but I've never, I also think it's worth noting that Jesus is with them. And they they really are terrified. Why is this? I think... I think it's because the disciples were filled with fear because they only really fixated on the storm that they were experiencing, their circumstances, and not who was with them in the midst of the storm. You see, peace isn't found in the absence of difficulties or storms in our life, but it's actually found in the presence of God in the midst of real-life hardships. Uh, My older brother, Adam, was born with uh, some bad spinal challenge than me and I remember when he was 12 years old and I was six years old he had to have life-saving brain surgery and I remember just how anxious he was that's kind of seared in my memory well the night before uh, my dad stayed with him in the hospital and you know what my dad couldn't take the fact that my brother was going to have this surgery away but just the presence of my dad calmed my brother down and he was able to sleep soundly now amazingly here Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat Notice how the tension in the story increases when the disciples find Jesus sleeping as they're trying to keep the boat from sinking. Yet the fact that he's sleeping, I think it showcases both his humanity and his divinity. You see, he had just finished a long story, and he was exhausted. So exhausted, it seems, that he was able to sleep through this storm. But I think there might be something else going on here. It it seems that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples something about who he really was. Look at verse 39, uh, or rather, I think it's uh, verse 38, 38. Um, What what do they do when they find Jesus asleep? Well, they wake him up. Uh, But notice, what do the disciples do next? They don't cry out for Jesus to save him here in Mark. That isn't what Mark highlights. And again, Mark, this is the eyewitness testimony of Peter here that Mark wrote down. Instead, the disciples question the the goodness of Jesus. They say, do you not care that we are perishing? I think this reveals their their deep feeling of abandonment in their time of real need. It shows that they doubted the goodness of God. And I think this is where the tension really begins to build almost to its breaking point. I think this is where it's awoke. But this time... He, he moves the focus off of the disciples waking Jesus up to Jesus himself waking himself up. And this seems to, to shift the focus from the disciples' initiative to save themselves to Jesus actually taking initiative to showcase his authority. 
after Jesus awakes, he displays true divine humility in the way that he responds to the disciples. It really is amazing. Instead of rebuking them, he turns his rebuke to the wind. But his actions also reveal that he has not, in fact, abandoned his disciples. Instead of abandoning them, he has shown uh, that he is faithful in their time of great need. And Jesus, as a result, addresses the driving tension of the story by saving them from the storm and proving that he really is trustworthy. So how does Jesus respond at this point? Verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still not no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? All right, notice that after Jesus storm, this is when he turns his attentions to his disciples. Maybe this is when he's going to rebuke them. But instead of rebuking them using the, the same harsh tone that he, he gave to the wind and the sea, he asked them two direct questions. These questions exposed their lack of trust in him and ultimately led up by saying, have you still no faith? The second question, have you still no faith? It seems to highlight the answer to the first. See, the reason the disciples... Uh, um, are filled with great fear in the midst of the storm is tied to their lack of understanding of, of uh, or trust in Jesus due to their lack of understanding of who he was. Now it's interesting. Mark doesn't record that is how the disciples answer these questions of, of um, Jesus. Instead, he shifts the focus again, and he shifts it back to the disciples. And I think this invites us into the actual tension of the narrative itself. And it challenges us to grapple with these same questions that the disciples were questioning. Ultimately, who is Jesus? We see by their conversation with each other that, that the disciples were left filled with great fear in the situation. I think it's worth pausing. Why are they filled with fear at this point? Well, see, I, I have a friend of mine. Uh, he once worked with uh, college students in Swaziland back in the 80s, and he, he led a young man to the Lord who was really bright, named Ambrose, and terrified my friend. He was informed that Ambrose had just been appointed the prime minister of Swaziland. This shocked my friend, and it terrified him. You see, Ambrose was not who he thought he was. He was, in fact, much more than You see, the disciples, the fear that they had was different from the anxiety and the fright that they experienced in the storm. Uh, this, was, this was a real sense of um, awe and, uh, and alarm. They thought they knew who Jesus was, but when they were faced with his real power, they realized that they didn't know who Jesus was. He was much more than they thought he was. He had command over nature, and this left them wrestling with the even greater tension of his identity. See, it's Jesus' great power and authority that he showcased here in revealing uh, he revealed here in calming the storm that shows that he is no ordinary human teacher for nature itself is subject to him. But how does this story relate to us today? Well, we may not often face physical storms at sea, but as we serve the Lord, we will face 
hardships and storms in our lives that are out of our control, and they can cause our hearts to fear. Many of you know me. Few of you probably know that I've been wrestling with depression for the past couple of years, and this is something that I didn't actually realize myself until last year. I started to unpack some of my story, um, and as I started to do that, I realized that I had been boxing up a lot of my emotions and a lot of things that I'd experienced in my life. And as I began to walk uh, with my family, my counselor, and God's word through some of these things, it's like a light switch went on in my brain. And I realized just how sad and anxious I was. It was an incredible raw moment with the Lord, but it was terrifying. Maybe you can relate to that, the feelings of anxiety or depression. Uh, maybe you've experienced a financial hardship, like I said before, or the rupturing of a relationship. Maybe it's unfulfilled desires. Just, hey, maybe I'm not going to get these in life. Present with us today, but he still remains present with us. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer, not fear. What can man do to me? God promises to be a, a present helper with his people. His presence helps us to recognize that he can be trusted to care for us because he, he says he will never leave us nor forsake us. And he also reminds us that he is in control regardless of what our fears may tell us. Now, Jesus does not promise to remove the storms from our life. This is a lie of the prosperity gospel that has infiltrated a lot of the American church and around the world. And I think it's dangerous because it can cause us to get mad at God when we experience hardship and we ask him to take it away from us, and he doesn't. Yet, although he does not promise to remove our storms, he does promise to sustain and empower us with his presence and his peace when we come to him with our fears and our anxieties. And that's what Paul calls us to do in Philippians 4. Uh, verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is a tremendous promise of God that... His peace will guard our hearts if we turn to him. It means that our circumstances don't have to dictate the way that we feel. Yet more than this, more than both his peace and his presence with us in the midst of our storms, God uses the storms in our life for our good and for his glory to expand his mission. This year, God has used my, my struggling, my wrestling with depression in a number of ways in my life. He's used it to really showcase my dependency on him, to give me a, a much greater love for his word, for my family, for the blessings he's given me. And he's also used it in the lives of people that I've met. For those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, in our story in Mark, Jesus was doing a profound work within the disciples. He was ripping away the foundation that they were building uh, upon they were building their trust upon, their abilities, their connections to Jesus, their knowledge, their experiences, in order to replace that with a foundation of just trusting him, his goodness, his character, his power. Now, have you ever come to the end of yourself, the end of your abilities? It's a scary place to be. If you haven't come to that place yet, chances are in life you probably will. I think the important question to ask is, where will you and I turn when we get to that place? 
Will we doubt the goodness of God like the disciples and allow ourselves to be gripped by fear? Or will we trust God and turn to him? There are times when we are filled with fear and doubt that if we're honest, we are like the disciples. We immediately, our default position is to doubt the goodness of God. Yet if we're honest, we try in our own strength to, to calm our fears. Yet in our mind, I think we know that there's nothing we can do to give ourselves peace. We can't remove the situation often. We can't remove our fears. But what is true about Jesus that proves that he cares for us and that he will uh, sustain us when we run to him? Well, I think this story reveals three things that I want to camp on. First, because Jesus has divine power and authority, we can turn to him with our fears and experience his peace. For some of us today, we're working hard to calm our own fears and our own strength. Others of us are trying everything we can do to ignore what we can't control. But we need to cling to the reality that God still holds the same power and authority today that he did here in our story with the disciples. For it is with the same power and authority that Jesus calmed the storm that he offers to empower us so that we can give up the control. Second, because Jesus is present with us in our storms, we can turn to him with our fears and receive his peace. Some of us feel abandoned by God today in our suffering. We may wonder, where are you, God? Are you sleeping? We may buy into the lie that because we don't see Jesus calming our storms, 13, that he will never leave nor forsake his people. Lastly, because we can turn to him with our fears and receive his peace. Instead of turning away from God, we have to cling to the reality that none of our pain is wasted by him. For because of his great care for us, we can trust that he is using the storms in our life for our good. And he is using the storms for his glory to expand his mission. More than this, because God cares for us, he pleads with us to continually throw our burdens down at his feet so that he can hold them and give us his peace. And that's what Peter, who was right here in this passage, that's what he calls us to do in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast all your anxieties on him, on Jesus, because he cares for you. Peter had experienced that firsthand many times. Let me close with a quote from one of my favorite theologians, uh, Maybe you know him, uh, Dr. Ben Bailey. And reflecting on this passage, this is what he says. I love this. On the cross, Jesus took the ultimate storm, the only storm that could really sink us upon himself. Because he bore that storm for us, now we can survive all other storms. And if we are in his boat, we cannot be sunk. For there is only one boat that can truly navigate through the ultimate storm and that is faith in christ the cross is our ark our life raft through the storm and on the cross jesus calmed the only storm that can ever truly sink us and when we see and understand that he has done this we can trust him and find his peace in all all other storms that we experience in this life under the shadow of death and you see therein lies the answer to these key questions what is true of God that can sustain and empower us to remain faithful in the Great Commission?
for the rest of li our lives, especially in the midst of these storms. Here's a couple takeaways I want to leave us with. First, God has called us to follow him and to be part of his Great Commission work, his work of making all things new. This is the main reason that we are, as believers are here on earth today. So second, it is his love, his care, his presence with us that is the only thing that can fuel and sustain us to remain obedient to him, to be engaged with his heart in the Great Commission for the rest of our lives. So I want to challenge each of us, my family included, to consider, ask the Lord, in this season of my life, how are you calling me to be involved with your Great Commission? How can my family be involved? What is my role? Is he asking you to consider going? Maybe uh, short-term, long-term. Is he asking you to help send other people, to mobilize them, to cast? Is he asking you to give sacrificially? I think he's inviting us as families and as churches to be more involved, as specifically as Trinity, to be more involved with his heart. I want, I want you guys to wrestle with that as a family with your kids. How can we be involved? Ben mentioned that we are going to be um, kind of amping up our missions emphasis within Trinity. And I would love um, to talk more with you about that if you, you're interested in that. I also want to commend us as a body. There's, there's a lot of you here, and we've heard from many of you in the past couple weeks, that are faithfully serving the Lord and that are engaged. And so I want to say, hey, thank you for doing that. Uh, if you're sitting out here today and you're just wondering, how can I be engaged more in the Great Commission? There's a lot of people here. You probably know somebody that is involved in, in Christ's working and that can connect you. So I just want to encourage you, take the initiative to do that. Consider in this season, what is God calling you to do? Regardless of what he's asking you and I to do, we have to cling to this reality that he is present with us and that he cares for us. And it's because he is present with us and he cares for us in our storms, that he can sustain us as we serve him in the midst of the storms in our life. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Peter.